Well, I want to welcome all of you here at the North Richland Hills campus and watching online. Last weekend, I started a new series titled Mist. And the title is a metaphor for the brevity of life. And I gave an assignment at the end of that teaching. I asked you to take something from your someday list and move it to your today file and let me know. And I heard from many of you, and every time I did, I felt like I was walking on holy ground, that you would entrust me with a part of your journey. And so I heard from some of you that said, I've always said someday I'm going to deal with my addiction, and someday is today. I heard from some who said, I have held bitterness towards someone in my heart for years, and I knew that I needed to get past it, and that day is today I'm offering forgiveness. And others said, I have known for years I needed to say, I'm sorry. And so today is the day I apologize. I heard from people who said, I am going to start making some changes in my life to have a healthier lifestyle today. One sweet lady told me that she needs that kick in the pants so that next time her pants will be smaller. (laughs) And others said, I need a different kind of discipline in my life. I need spiritual discipline. I need to start some practices in my life that will produce long-term spiritual health. No more someday. I'm going to start today. I heard from one family that said, we have said for a long time, you know, we need to start reading the Bible at night with our children. Well, that starts today. And it did. I heard from one precious single woman who said, for too long, I have needed some man to give me validation. And today, I'm going to let God do that. So it was powerful. And I want to say again, I feel honored that you would trust me with that part of your journey. And I hope more of you will join the journey. Because I said then, and I say again, the aim of this series is to get you to recalibrate your priorities, to line up with the consistent biblical witness regarding the brevity of life. Because all of the scriptural metaphors for an average lifespan in the Bible make the same point. The dash is short. Vapor. Shadow, breath, grass, dust. These are the words the Bible uses to describe the dash. And the word we focused on the most. What is your life? Your life is missed. You don't get to say anything about the first date on that tombstone, and you have very little say about the last date. But you get to do something about the dash. 
And because it's brief, the scripture says you need to number your days and count them so that you will make each one count. And so we're going to look in scripture at different perspectives as people deal with the brevity of life. And what we want to do today is begin with Solomon. It's one reason we have this book called Ecclesiastes because the Bible is full of what I call missed takes. And I want to look at a couple from Solomon. Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book. Late in his life, Solomon left a close walk with the Lord. He basically became a secularist. And he uses in the book a phrase over and over, under the sun. He talks, uh, when he uses that phrase, about the created world. And he starts to live his life only from the perspective of the horizontal. He doesn't bring the divine into his worldview. He only sees the created and not the creator. And as he wrestles with life's problems from a horizontal perspective, he's overwhelmed with one truth, and I would call it the reality of mortality. He wrestles with the fact that everybody eventually checks out of motel earth. And the lasting impression that bothers him is that nothing is lasting. Now, some read him as a pessimist, others as a realist. Either way, he writes as a secularist who has no answer that will pass the acid test of death. And the thing that he constantly remembers is that nothing and nobody will be constantly remembered. For example, in chapter 2, he writes, For the wise and the foolish both die, and the wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. And you know what? He's right. Do you know the name of your great-great-great-grandfather? If you went to college and walked across campus and saw names on buildings, did you know who those names were? And did you even care? He goes on to say in chapter 9, the same destiny ultimately awaits everyone. Whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious, good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. It seems so tragic that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. That is why people are not more careful to be good. Instead, they choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There's nothing ahead but death anyway. And he's got a special word that he uses over and over in his book as he wrestles with the reality of mortality. And the word, depending on your translation, is either vanity or meaningless. He starts the book with that theme. Everything is meaningless. Completely meaningless. And here's what is so interesting. The Hebrew word that is translated vanity or meaningless is the word hebel. And it literally means 
breath, vapor, mist. Throughout the Bible, it's used metaphorically. For example, look at uh, Psalm 144. Oh, Lord, what are human beings that you should notice them? Mere mortals that you should think about them. For they are like Habel. Just a breath of air. Their days are like a passing shadow. And nobody uses the word more than Solomon. And he uses it metaphorically to show that death ultimately mocks the notion that created things are solid and satisfying as they pretend to be. He says to try to find ultimate meaning under the sun is like chasing the wind. And if that's what you're doing, if you are trying to find meaning in life by chasing created things, you are Involved in the inevitably disappointing task of vapor management. And so he proposes a couple of missed takes. The first one is for the cynic. He says you can be anti-matter. You can live your life as a cynic and say what's the point anyway. Because one thing Ecclesiastes does is challenge simple, dualistic interpretations of life. You know what I mean. Those simple, naive philosophies that say, if you'll just be good, then good things will happen. And if you act bad, bad things will happen. This was what Job's friends said. Job, the reason you have problems is because you are a problem. But Solomon knows better because he has studied life. He says in chapter 7, I've seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. Haven't you noticed that? The very first funeral I ever preached, I was a baby preacher, only been a preacher for about three months was for a 21-year-old new bride who found out just a month after she was married that she had an aggressive cancer. And she died before her first anniversary. And I don't care how long you go to school or how many theologies you read, there aren't words good enough for that situation. He says in chapter 8, this is not all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they are wicked. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. I think one reason we have the book of Ecclesiastes Is because God knows deep down we think these thoughts. We wrestle with the absurdity of life. Sweet people can have a life full of burdens. And grumps and cranks can live with blessings into their 90s. And if you've never thought about that, you don't have your eyes open. One week ago, 
The gifts are at home with their family, enjoying their children. And today, five-year-old Truman is battling aggressive leukemia with aggressive chemotherapy. And if that doesn't disturb you, you need to wake up. And God knows that the honest heart, every now and then, wrestles with what's the point. Now, some people say, well, here's the point. You, you can find meaning in life uh, if you'll just earn enough or if you'll just sleep with enough people, if you'll just build enough big buildings, if you'll just get enough degrees. Solomon says, I've been down all those roads, every one of them. Make all the money you want, missed. Have all the sex you want, missed. Have more wisdom than anybody else, missed. Build the grandest buildings in the world, missed. And so he says, I came to hate life. Because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless. Like chasing the wind. Last May, a brilliant Christian thinker and author named Dallas Willard passed away. He maybe has influenced more ministers than any man of his generation. And I remember him several years ago telling a story about this dog race in Florida where they have a track and the dogs chase an electronic rabbit around the track and people bet on which dog will be the fastest. But this particular day there was a malfunction and the electronic rabbit stopped and the dogs caught it and didn't know what to do. They jumped up and down and yelped because they had never caught the rabbit. And once they did, they weren't very satisfied. (laughs) And Solomon says, you're chasing mist. You can't build a life on it. Every road he went down ultimately proved to be a cul-de-sac. Because does it matter how you play your hand If death holds the trump card. Do you remember the moment when you finally faced the reality of your mortality? Maybe you were in an accident or almost in a serious accident. Maybe you got a very bad report from a doctor. For me, it was when I turned 50. I remember getting out of bed that morning and thinking, I'm 50 years old. I've already lived a third of my life. (laughs) And so you could do the whole anti-matter take and just live your life as a bitter cynic Saying, what's the point? We're all just going to die. But it's here that Solomon takes an unexpected and quite delightful detour and says, but there's another way to take the fact that we're just missed. That is, you could be pro-life. 
I mean, since we're all going to die anyway, Solomon says, you ought to do all the living you can. You're never going to be able to manage vapor. So what you need to do is learn how to find the joy that is in every day while understanding you can't control outcomes. In fact, that sounds a little bit like something Jesus said. Which of you, by worrying, are going to be able to add even one hour to your life? And so Solomon would say, since you can't add years to your life, you might as well add some life to your years. Stop just dashing through life and start living the dash. Chapter 3. So I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. Chapter 8. So I recommend having fun. Because there's nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. Chapter 9. So go ahead. Eat your food with joy and drink your grape juice with a happy heart. (laughs) For God approves of this. What he's saying is, tell a joke now and then. Go to a party. Have a nice meal and enjoy it. Travel. Get a hobby. Learn to play an instrument and have some bluebell. (laughs) You see, if the atheist can argue the problem of pain, and they do. The big question of atheism is if there's a good God, why is there so much evil in the world? So if the atheist can argue the problem of pain, the theist should be able to argue the problem of pleasure. How do you explain so much needless joy in the world? We don't need all the colors we have. God could have created everything to be black and white and gray. Instead, he gave us sunsets and mountain peaks. God could have just made all food bland. And it could have served the function of fueling the engine. Instead, he gave us these taste buds that can experience thousands of kinds of wonderful tastes. Why? Think about sex. God did not have to make it pleasurable. It could have simply been a biological function for procreation. Instead, just read the book of Song of Solomon. God created the sexual act between husband and wife for pleasure. You know, there's a species of spider that when they are through sexually coming together, the female eats the male. I think that would take some of the joy out of it. I think most husbands would still do it, but I think it would take some of the joy out of it. 
Here's what Solomon is saying. Life is hard. Live anyway. Suck the marrow out of life. I read a book about 10 years ago and came up with a new hero. His name was S.L. Potter. He lived in California. And on his 100th birthday, he said he wanted to try bungee jumping. Now, his children, ages 68 to 74, strongly disagreed, but he went anyway. On his 100th birthday, he climbed a 200-foot tower and successfully bungee jumped. And his first words when he got off the cord were, give me back my teeth. (laughs) I believe the world needs a witness of a people who are fully alive. But to be fully alive, you need a take that death cannot take. And that's where Solomon disappoints ultimately. And where Paul proves to be wiser. He's in prison. He has no idea if his dash is done or if it will be extended. But here's what he said. I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. You see, Paul was not into mist management. He had a life purpose that could not be missed, even if he died. And so Paul would say, you could be anti-matter, be a cynic, you can be pro-life and have a party, but I'm going to be purpose-driven. Because at the end of the day, all of Solomon's advice still has an it's all about me ring to it. And as long as life is about you, you will stay frustrated because you can't manage mist. But Paul's take was that it's all about Christ. And if exalting Christ with your dash is your aim, then you're not going to miss your target, no matter how short or long your dash is. He says, my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. That life will never be a waste if it's lived for the glory of God. So if your life feels meaningless right now, one of two problems. Either number one, you have the wrong goal. You're chasing the created. You're chasing mist. Or... You got the right goal, the glory and honor of Christ, but you're picking the wrong way to get there. In some ways, I think the authentic secularist lives a better life than the phony believer. 
The authentic secularist says it's about more sex or a bigger house or a better degree. And he's going to chase it. He's going to live authentic with his goal. Now, his goal is going to dissatisfy, but at least he's living consistent with his stated goal. How much more frustrating must it be to have a stated goal to honor and glorify Christ and then live chasing mist? So change your goal or change your strategy. And so, back to Dallas Willard. When he was just two years old, his mother died. And her last words to her husband were these. Keep eternity before the children. How wise. Don't let the kids live horizontally. Chasing the created, trying to manage mist, never looking above the sun. So this past week, I'm in the hospital room with the Gist family, visiting little Truman. Derricka, his mother, pulls out the outline from last week. And talks about how many times she has gone over the notes of that message. And do you remember the last thing I said? I asked you to pray every day. Psalm 90 verse 14. Satisfy us, O Lord, with your unfailing love. That we might rejoice and be glad all our days. And Derek has shared with me how. When you are where they are right now. You better have something solid and constant and eternal like the love of God to stand on. Because in that moment, mist won't help. You see, if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. And nothing can frustrate that purpose because Jesus Christ went into a tomb and he turned a cul-de-sac into a thoroughfare. And now life and death are under the sun. And so at that End of that great chapter on resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul could say, so my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. It's never missed. It's never vain. It's never meaningless. If it's just a cup of cold water, but you did it for Jesus, it matters, and it matters forever. Because under the Son of God, we see the fatality of futility. He has ended it. He buried it. Death no longer holds the trump card. It has been defeated by the one who is above the Son. And that means that anything I do for Him matters and will last And you don't have to spend your life chasing 
and trying to catch and possess and manage vapor. But you need a mist take that will protect you from that mistake. And so I was delighted to hear about a locker room speech, January the 4th, 2006. The Texas Longhorns had just defeated the University of Southern California Trojans for the national championship at the Rose Bowl. Any coach would say, that's the greatest moment of my life, wouldn't they? But Mac Brown got into the locker room with his boys after that game and said, do not let this be the best moment of your life. It's a great moment. But this was just a game. What wisdom? Don't build a life on vapor. Only what is done for the glory of God will last. And it will be placed in a heavenly treasury. For it will never be missed. So, Father, I'm praying right now for ears to hear this word. Because we are bombarded with demonic propaganda that we can have a meaningful life because of time in a boardroom or a bedroom, or a ball game. Deliver us, God, from the vanity of chasing mist. And stir up in our hearts right now the courage to make some life changes and some life choices that glorify you. Take our lives. Let them be all for you. And for your glory. For the sake and the honor. Of the sun above the sun. Amen. Please stand. We got prayer teams that are going to be down here. And you need to make a step today. Not someday. Today. To come confess a sin. To come ask for counsel. To come confess Christ and be baptized. Today is the day to live for what matters. Please come.